Welcome to The Pulpit, the sermon podcast of Calvary Moravian Church. My name is Pastor Chaz Snyder, and I hope you'll use this recording to grow deeper in God's Word and help you on your spiritual journey. Our epistle lesson is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 13 through 22. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, reverence Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. And keep your conscience clear so that when you are abused, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Please stand for the reading of our gospel. The gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to John chapter 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in with you. I will not leave you desolate. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me 
does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go hence. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Join me in a moment of just quiet reflection as we ponder the words we have just heard. Gracious Spirit, in your presence we wait for your Spirit to speak. Allow us to be still for this moment. The activities of the day, the responsibilities of the week ahead, the tasks that demand attention, the relationships that need repair and hope, the fears, the doubts, the hopes, the aspirations, we leave them all to your care so that we might be fully open, listening, giving attention to what your spirit seeks to reveal in this moment. May you surround each of us with your presence as a motherly father who loves us all as a fatherly mother. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to thank Amanda for reaching out and asking uh, for me to be here. But I want to say something up front. First of all, when you speak to preachers about doing Mother's Day, they will privately be able to tell you about more people who struggle with this day as well as Father's Day than who do not. So be aware of that. It's a hard day for different reasons for many people. So why did I volunteer for this moment? Because a wonderful mother who's a better preacher is supposed to be here but a tragedy took her only son away. So our thoughts go to Sandra Thickpen. When I was at Reynolds High School in the early 80s, there was a wonderful teacher and coach. Uh, Wilson Alexander coached football. Some of you might have had him in a class. He taught US history and current events. 
And if there was some important holiday coming, it could be Christmas or Mother's Day, whatever it was, he had the same line every time. Do not give the people you love, especially your parents, a card. He's talking mostly to young men. Tell them yourself with your own mouth, I love you. I want you to think about that today as we think about Mother's Day and we think more importantly about these two texts. I, w- I want to bring to your attention the fact that Mother's Day has only been a thing for a little more than about 1914 forward. I'm sure most of you were there the first time that they celebrated Mother's Day. And its intention was to remember what motherhood's supposed to be coming off the heels of a number of wars. In fact, it really started, the movement started right after the Civil War, and it was an attempt to bring together families who either fought against each other in the Civil War or they were divided by all the tragedies that war created, originally known as Mother's Friendship Day. In the early 1900s, it picked up steam as also a pursuit of temperance and peace and well-being and hope in a culture that seemed to be riveted with war. And isn't it ironic that the first time it was celebrated officially by President Wilson was the year before World War I broke out. Again, for some, this holiday is super difficult, but when I think about its original intent, that we think of peace and hope and this love that Amanda just spoke up to the children, well, maybe we ought to take it up and consider it. When I personally think of this day, I have a story to tell, which I'll get to in a moment, and oddly, it includes a big, important topic in theology, so tell Pastor Chaz I invited you to ask him about the doctrine of the providence of God. And if you're trying to write something in seminary, particularly at that PhD level, this is the one topic everybody avoids the most, and it's been written about the least, and yet experienced the most. The providence of God covers the tragedies that happen to us. It talks about the things that are happening in this text in John 14. In fact, the entire uh, five chapters of John devoted to the Last Supper. It's when God shows up in human affairs to intervene and act. But it's also about the mystery of why does suffering happen in the first place. You might be surprised that in the last 150 years or so, only two people have endeavored to write something important about the providence of God. And the first and more famous of the two is Jürgen Moltmann. He wrote about the suffering of God after World War II, but he wasn't the only voice. More recently was one of the first professors at Wake Divinity School, Frank Tupper, a Baptist theologian, who began to write about it in the 1970s. What's the providence of God about? I want you to put yourself in the position of a mother who's either had to experience tragedy or who's just frustrated with her children. Uh, We were talking behind the scenes a moment ago about raising teenage boys. And someone was saying to me, they need a a mom who's raising teenage boys needs special prayers. And I know what that's like. I was one and I had some. So you find yourself in those situations where things are difficult, and in fact, if you would like to do this, imagine yourself being one of the disciples at that Last Supper table 
listening to the words of John 14, beginning at verse 15 from Jesus, and what they must have been feeling in that foreboding moment of fear. In Frank Tupper's words, I thought I knew God and then my life fell apart. I could see that God didn't cause the pain and yet I could not understand the mystery of the suffering. I could see that God was present in more than abundant ways. And the more I looked, I began to see the struggle has meaning. And the more I cooperated with God's presence and redemption, something reparative takes form. Hear that one more time. The more I cooperated with God's presence and redemption in a moment of tragedy, something reparative takes form. John 14, beginning at verses 15 through 21, is a really important thing to think about when you want to consider how God sheds light on reparative love. Did you notice that in that first verse, as we heard the scripture read so well this morning, there is the word love. And in the last verse, there is the word love. So it begins and ends with love. But did you know it's part of a much longer section? In fact, John spends one-fourth of his gospel to tell us about one particular night in the life of the disciples and Jesus when Jesus sat at table with them and taught from chapters 13 through 17, ending with a high priestly prayer. We could talk about a lot of things there, but what I would invite you to consider in this moment is what did the disciples need to hear to prepare them for what they were going to see in the garden when the trail went down, in the trials that took place before dawn and into the early morning the next day, and ultimately, what did they need to hear to prepare them for the tragedy of the crucifixion before they understood its victory? In fact, what do you need to hear? right now. This past week, uh, Lane and I were at seminary, in fact, last weekend for the graduation of our seminary students, and part of that occasion gave us a chance to hang out and drink Kool-Aid and talk to folks, uh, not just our students, but our faculty, and so I was actually preparing to be with you talking to one of our New Testament professors, and we were talking about this text. And my comment to her is, I'm surprised that our young pastors lately have preached from 1 Peter. She had just done that for the seminary trustees a couple weeks ago, because most of us avoid it. 1 Peter was written during a time when Jewish people had become Christian, and persecution was getting so bad that some people were going back to their Jewish faith just so they could stay alive. And so the hellfire and brimstone sorts of things come from letters like, First Peter in a particular context. And I was telling Brigida that it's kind of awesome to hear hope come from a text that's often misunderstood. This morning, as I look at 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 13, and I think about uh, the providence of God in John 14 and so forth, I hear that phrase, be ready to give account for the hope that is in you. And if you've ever played the role of a parent, If you've been in a place of tragedy, it's hard enough to be there yourself. But to give testimony to the hope that is within you when everybody's upset, that is God's call to you. Later in that same text, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, it reminds us that Jesus suffered not just to redeem but to repair 
so that all might know that through the resurrection of Christ there is hope. What did it mean that in Christ God chose to suffer for us and with us so that in his resurrection his work could move through us? That is the invitation of the doctrine of the province of God. I'm not going to try to explain it in full, how God intervenes in this universe, how he chooses to be with us. I will warn you that most of the things you read about the providence of God tries to smooth over suffering by saying God's in in absolute control of everything. Think as a parent for a second. If you have a child and you decide you're going to be in absolute control of everything they ever do, what are they going to figure out pretty quick is you don't love them. You're trying to turn them into a robot. So there's this real difficult thing of while you could have absolute control, you choose to allow them to have some free will, and then it gets real interesting, right? If God is love and that love is unconditional, God chooses in some mysterious way, though he could control everything, not to. So that mystery and that love can have life. So our understanding in the modern era of the providence of God, at least for me, starts with a man named Jürgen Moltmann. He was a German. Imagine you're 16 years old. Suddenly your country is enraged in war and you don't believe in your country being at war against the Allies. But you had to fight anyway or you wouldn't be alive. Jürgen Moltmann was forced into military service. He was trained for just a couple of weeks and so his first day on the job at 16, he's manning an anti-aircraft artillery weapon with his best friend. The night that Hamburg was carpet bombed by the Allies, and 40,000 people died, including his friend. And at 16, he thought it was all his fault that God had judged him for being a part of an unrighteous cause and that he would pay the price. A few months later, he was captured by the Allies and went to prison where he remained for three years. But check this out. Thank God for those American chaplains that provided to that young 16-year-old Jürgen Moltmann a copy of Mark's gospel, which he kept reading the Holy Week part. You know, Mark spends a whole third of his gospel just on Holy Week. And the suffering of Jesus, the Jesus who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And somehow, with the help of the YMCA volunteers in Scotland, where he was in prison, he began to understand some mystery of how God loves us. When he was released, he went on to finish his education to become a professor at Tübingen and one of the foremost voices for the neo-Orthodox movement in the 20th century, writing such titles as The Crucified God and The Theology of Hope. How in the world do you go from Hamburg and watching 40,000 people die, including your friends, to having an understanding that God lives and moves and finds life in our suffering. I won't pretend to do that for you. You're going to have to do it for yourself. So what does this have to do with me being here in this moment with you and what Sandra Thigpen has gone through and what I want you to know in this moment? Well, it's really about Frank Tupper. During COVID, when we were all in shelter in place and Many of us were still doing worship service, though live stream with just a skeleton crew around. I remember taking long walks during the week several times. 
And your pastor, Chas Snyder, is one of my greatest encouragers. He encourages me, I think, more than I encourage him. And he always puts me on people I need to be listening to. And one of those theologians has a long-standing pod series. And in it, at one point during COVID, he was interviewing all these professors that had changed his life. And I was listening to Frank Tupper, and what got my attention is Wake Forest Divinity School. You see, I was, uh, Fairview Moravian was a host site for one of the first students to attend, and I know many in that first class very well, one of whom remains one of my closest pastor friends to this day. So I'm hearing all this cool stuff about Frank Tupper, and I'm hearing his story, and I went and talked talk to my friend. I wanted to be sure this was all legit, and she responded in one sentence, Frank Tupper changed my life. So here's his story. It's 1970, Frank Tupper's a young uh, theologian, pastor. He's gone to uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville and he is learning to do his PhD work a lot like Chaz is doing right now. And his intent is to write something about the providence of God. So he thought it'd be a good idea to go to Europe and live for a year with people who survived the Holocaust, with people Jewish and Christian who retained a resilient faith in the face of the worst things our modern history has ever seen. How could you possibly have a faith after all of that? And he came home and he's so encouraged and he's getting ready to write this wonderful work that he did publish called A Scandalous Providence. The Jesus Story of God's Compassion, and a profound book that will change your life. And then shortly thereafter, with a young family, a young wife, and two very young daughters, he begins to do his work and found his wife was diagnosed with cancer, a fairly curable form, but not for her. In a very short time, he was a widowed husband, a father of two girls. It's wonder that Frank Tupper has coined this phrase that God, to understand how God works in our lives, is a motherly father who is a fatherly mother, probably because he had to become one. But to hear the testimony of students who experienced that compassion and love for many years is a whole other thing. So at some point in the early, early 2021, I remember deciding to get the book to use it for stuff at church. I got Robert Wolf, who goes to Grace Moravian. He's our retired chaplain of the Forsyth Prison Ministry and a classmate of mine from seminary to read it. And I thought this was awesome. And it came around to Mother's Day 2021. And if you remember 2021 well enough, you know that there was this sort of uptick in COVID and some of us had to kind of shelter again. And those services were being uh, broadcast live, but we were able to pre-record that service to give the staff a weekend off. So the family went away, and we had a, a little bit of a vacation that we, you know, like Chaz is having this weekend, and I took my book with me, and I had every intent to read it, but, you know, I usually have too much fun and get distracted. And one of my family members got really, really sick. And so I sat at the bed and read from the book and tended and cared and went back and read from the book. And it all worked out okay. It was Sunday afternoon about 4 o'clock on Mother's Day. And everything was looking good. We're packing up the car to go home. And I remember audibly saying privately, thank you, Lord, that you gave me this weekend to read Frank Tupper's book on the providence of God. I'm starting to make sense of the suffering of COVID. But boy, am I clear about how much you love me. And then the phone rang. 
one of my closest friends, who'd been retired a short period of time, divorced, father of two young women, was missing. His daughters had not heard from him in a while, and even at the Mother's Day, he was quick to call them and had not called. And I noticed he hadn't returned any of my texts in a while. So they said, would you just roll by his house when you're going home towards Mount Airy? He lives in King, and I did. And I remember seeing all the things on his porch, all the different deliveries that had probably been sent there over the course of a week or 10 days, and I knew in my heart something awful had happened. Later that evening, that one daughter who had to drive in from Charlotte met me, standing in the yard at 8 o'clock at night, not knowing what in the world to do, watching her piece together that tragedy. All I could say was that God loves you. I don't know what this means. I know that he didn't do this, but I know that he can work through this with you. Every Father's Day, I think about my friend who was a wonderful motherly father and sometimes a fatherly mother to his daughters. Jesus says that in this world there's going to be a lot of stuff you don't understand and a whole lot more suffering than you want to deal with. And the hardest part is when that suffering's happened to the people you love. And even though you don't understand it, you can show up. And even though you don't know how, God's love will work through you when you choose to. Even on a Monday, on a late Sunday night in somebody's yard and it's supposed to be Mother's Day and they're having a tragedy. Today I know that Sandra is surrounded by God's grace because of you, because of what you're already doing for her as a church member. Today I know that despite the suffering that goes on in Winston-Salem and the broader world, I don't know the answers, but I know that we can do something about it if we just show up. And the biggest thing, the biggest hurdle that you have to overcome, and most parents know this, but we can all learn it, is stop trying to figure it out. Just be there and love. Love the way you want to be loved and see what can happen. I thought I was taking a vacation, giving my staff time off so I could have some time off and read something I thought was interesting. I didn't know that God had a plan for how it would be used. Today, all the things that matter to you are part of a greater plan that God is seeking to use to love this world well, beginning with your family, your network of friends and neighbors, and even those who give you the hardest time and cause you the biggest grief. Be ready to give account for this hope that you have. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we move through this life, we never know when good things or bad things can happen, but the only thing we are certain of is your presence, and for that we are grateful. You love us more than we deserve, and you love us in a way that is beyond our description, that captures both what it means to be loved by a fatherly mother and a motherly father. And for that, we thank you. But Lord, grant us the courage, like you did through Jesus, loving his disciples on that last night, that you would enable us to love more boldly, more courageously, where it's needed the most, where the hurt is the greatest. 
and we'll give you the glory before we know the outcome. In the name of Jesus, amen.